Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he has made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Here ends the Old Testament reading. Father God, we thank you so much that even though our lives are so full of boasts about ourselves, uh, you sent Jesus to die for us and forgive us. And we thank you that you bear with us and you speak to us. Thank you you do that through your word, the Bible. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us from it. Amen. Please do take a seat. Let me say a big good morning to everybody. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, then my name is Ken Matthews, and I'm the minister here at St. Joseph. But let me ask you, who are you? Who are you? So it might sound a little bit aggressive as a kind of introduction, kind of thing you say to a burglar, who are you and what are you doing in my house? But what I'm, not ask, I'm not really asking you, do you know what your name is? I hope you do. <laughs> or, or what job do you do? I'm asking you, what defines you? Is it your name? Is it your job? Or is there more to us than that? Well, that all may sound pretty philosophical for a Sunday morning. But we're tackling the second topic in our big, uh, biblical views on big issues today. And our topic is self-image and self-esteem. And it's a topic that goes right to the foundations of who we are and how we view ourselves. So quiz time. How do you view yourself? Let me give you three of the most common answers to that question that keep cropping up in our culture. Are you, A, a lucky accident? As there are those who believe that life on earth has come about because of some cosmic chance event and that we have all evolved from the primeval swamp. Now, I don't want to knock evolutionary theory for a minute 
as I don't believe it's a theory that contradicts the existence of God. But if you insist that God isn't the initiator of that process, then it's logical to believe that we're not any different from any of the animals around us. I mean, after all, genetic research has shown that chimpanzees share between 95 and 99% of the same DNA we do. If you follow that through to its logical conclusion, you and I have no inherent value, or at least no more value than a dolphin or a dog or a dung beetle. Instead, we are just naked apes who were lucky enough to win the race to the top of the evolutionary tree. Is that all we are? Biological accidents? Or are we B? Gods and superheroes. That sounds more like it, doesn't it? As at the opposite end of the spectrum. We're not animals at all. No, we are more like gods. As we are told to view ourselves as amazing and that we should think wonderful thoughts about ourselves. We see this kind of thinking in the adverts that tell us to reveal the goddess inside you. Or in uh, books like this one, entitled Super You, Releasing Your Inner Superhero, which I'm just about to do for you right now. No, 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 I'm not, no, no, one, no one wants to see that. Um, uh, but we're supposed to think, if only I could be freed from other people's opinions and expectations and find the real me lurking down inside, then, then, then I'll fly. Wouldn't that be great? And because we're a superhero, no one should be able to question how we live. And what we do, no matter how damaging it is to ourselves or to others. Is that what we are? Unaccountable superheroes ready to be unleashed on an unsuspecting public? Or are we see what we can offer? Basically, economic resources. For we now come to the position where your view of yourself all depends on what you have to offer to the world. The scales used tend to vary. It might be how useful or productive you are, or how intelligent or beautiful or funny you are. But whatever the scale is, is that's used, who we are and what we are worth all depends on what we have to offer others and how we compare to others around us. Which is why when you meet somebody new, what do you do? Well, after maybe asking them what their name is, you ask them, what do you do? And it's also why when we meet a brain surgeon, we might be more likely to think more of them or be more impressed than when we meet a supermarket checkout girl. Our culture certainly measures human worth that way, doesn't it? Greater abilities or personality or or just sheer hard work and effort equals greater value. And yet, and yet, surely there must be more to us than that. Surely we can't be reduced to any of these things. You see, whichever of those answers you're aware of or have maybe been convinced of, we can see that there are real dangers lurking behind each one of them. Which is why there's so much pain and confusion surrounding this issue. And folks feel very raw and anguished about it. Some of the statistics are frightening. So much so I can almost not say the word statistics, especially for teenagers. It's been reported that 75% of 12 to 17-year-old girls 
would like cosmetic surgery because it would make them feel happier about their appearance. Similarly, 84% of teenage boys thought that having a better body would improve their lives. Now, as we grow older, some of the angst that we feel about our appearance tends to fade. In most cases. But not always. Yet most of us are still concerned about how we compare to others and and what others think of us. Which is why this issue of establishing our unique identity and a healthy self-worth has become an obsession for us. And we will always struggle with it until we stop looking around or looking inside and start looking up. As the root of our identity issues is the fact that we're asking the wrong question too much of the time. As the issue isn't so much, how do I view myself or how do others view me? But how does God view me? And the first answer to this question is in his image. Here's the first jigsaw piece of our identity. We should view ourselves as made in the image of God. And at the risk of sounding a little like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning, as apparently that is a very good place to start. And right at the beginning of the Bible, what is God doing? He's working. He's making all things and ruling over all things. And after he's made everything else, he gets to the final thing on his to-do list. And it's to make humans as the pinnacle of his creation. As Genesis 1, which we read earlier on, verse 26 says, well, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now it's important to say that Genesis is primarily not a work of scientific analysis, but of theological truth. It is much more concerned with the why we are here and who made us than how we got here in the first place. And right at the start of Genesis, we learn that humanity seems to be a kind of hybrid creature. We share a likeness to the animals that God has already made. We share many characteristics with other creatures, especially mammals, from our DNA right through to our fingers or or that common template of a face with two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. But we are not simply naked apes, as there is one thing that sets us apart. We are created in God's own image. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we might say of a son, oh, he's a chip off the old block, as some folks do actually say about my son, Jamie. He's a chip off the old block. He's he's the very image of his, he's the spitting image of his father. And what we mean by that is he resembles his dad, not just physically, but in his habits and his hobbies and his mannerisms. And so being made in God's image means resembling God, not physically, but in character and capabilities, in the kind of way a son resembles a father. 
We are made to be like God. And we see some of these things, the things that that means in Genesis 1 itself, as, as God creates. And just like God, you and me, you, you and I were made to be creatively productive. As he says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And that doesn't just mean having kids, as we can sp- display our God-given creativity in, every, in the everyday business of teaching a lesson, or balancing books, or caring for a patient, or in baking a cake, or singing a song, or playing the piano. And God is relational. And just like God, you and I were made with a unique capacity for relationships. And so verse 27, God says, male and female, he created them. We're created to relate to one another. We're created to relate to God first and foremost, but to also to relate to other, which is why relationships are so important to us. They're not just defined by our job and our name, but, but who we're connected with often. And God rules. And just like God, you were made to rule over creation. What a mind blow that is. But God says in verse 26, let them have dominion, let them rule. We're created to be responsible and to look after all that God has made. And I could go on about our capacities for abstract reasoning and for language, or our capacity for self-giving as opposed to instinct-driven love and compassion. Or how in the face of death we long for more life which hints at the fact that we were made for eternity by an eternal being. These things mark us off from the animals and show that we are made in the image of God who is like that. And this is the first jigsaw piece, as I say, of our true identity and self-worth. We are made by God in his likeness. And a number of key realities flow from this fact. One, every one of us is valuable, so no one is disposable. See, God doesn't see us precious and valuable for what we have to offer to him, but because of who he has made us. The maker of the galaxies, the stars, the mountains, the oceans, he made you. So he values you, no matter what. When you popped out of your mum like Harry Houdini, proudly holding your umbilical cord in one hand, going, ta-da! See, it's a bit hazy for me now after my three kids, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how childbirth works. Um, uh, but when you popped out, God doesn't go, oh dear, oh dear, what was I thinking with that one? <laughs> no, that was, not, that was not fully baked. You know, I'm going to scrumple that up and let's just start again. No, you are not an accident. You are a precious masterpiece. God never does things accidentally and he never makes mistakes. All Christian arguments about the sanctity of human life derive from this essential fact. Human value is derived from our createdness. We are not merely what we have to offer. We are of value in and of ourselves. So, a child with Down syndrome or spina bifida is no less valuable than you or I. Even if his or her mental or physical capabilities are restricted. A grandfather is to be treated with dignity, even if he's bedbound with Alzheimer's and is unable to go to the toilet or feed himself. A criminal is still fully human, 
even if his behavior has been subhuman or dehumanizing. This is true of all people, male or female, black or white, young or old, able-bodied or disabled, born or even an unborn child in its mummy's tummy. We are all God's image bearers. So we all have equal value and purpose and dignity in God's eyes. Two, we're made in the image of God, but we're still only an image. This um, here on the screen is a picture of a Ming vase. It is worth 53.1 million pounds. It is so incredibly valuable. But sadly, it's not the real thing, is it? So we can't just take it down to cash converters and see what we'd get for it. Maybe that's not the right place. Maybe Sotheby's would be more the place. But it's just an image, isn't it? And while we are masterpieces with unbelievable capabilities, made in the image of the glorious creator himself, we are not God himself. We are not superheroes. So we mustn't think more of ourselves than we should. We should remind ourselves that we are still only an image. It has been said that this truth, being made in God's image, should lift the head of the poorest beggar and bend the knee of the most exalted king. I think that's right, isn't it? It gives us both great dignity and also keeps us humble and dependent on God. So if you think you're better than you are because you're smart, you're hard-working, funny, cute, popular, gifted, you're, you are the brain surgeon, then you need to get a handle on how you view yourself. And if, as we want to, and if we want to know what makes us special because we aren't as funny, cute, popular, or gifted as others, it's this, that you are made by God to be like God. This is the antidote to low self-esteem. And it's also the cure for pride that we learn to view ourselves with a humble dignity. Three, God has made us to be like him, so we need to know and trust him. We don't need to look inside to find the real me or look around to see how everybody else is doing so we can find out what we should be doing too. No, we only find the real us when we get to know the God in whose image we are made and live out that image by trusting him. For we flourish best as human beings if we live in that image, when we seek to find out what God is like and model our thinking and our action, acting on his words rather than our urges and desires. I've always admired TV impersonators. Don't know about you if you like that kind of thing. Folks like Rory Bremner or some of these new kids on the block who crop up every now and again on Britain's Got Talent. And if you ever try to impersonate someone, then you'll just know how difficult that is to pull off. You have to study every last nuance of their speech and their mannerisms to get it right. Well, that's what we need to do as God's image bearers, don't we? Study his character and his personality. By doing so, we can find out who we are and how we should live. And unlike most of the great impressionists, amazing, incredibly, privilegedly, we get to meet God as he reveals himself in the pages of the Bible. And we get to talk to him as we pray and we walk with him each day. That's what we're made for, 
And that's how we should live. And that leads us to the second way in which God sees us. And that we should therefore see ourselves. And don't worry here. This is going to be very brief. Um, as we're going to take a little moment to think about how, secondly, we should view ourselves as sinners saved by grace. As Genesis 3 tells the story of how the image bearers got greedy. Satan tempts the first humans to disobey God. And he says that if they do, they will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so they take the bait and sin enters the world. It's not enough for them to live in humble dignity. They want to be God themselves. For the heart of sin is not wanting to live under God's authority, but to have control of our own lives. And that has been the desire of every man and woman since. Which is why in that passage that we had read earlier on from Mark 7, Jesus says that we are full of sin. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they define a person. You see, sin is not just a problem of bad behavior. That's just the symptom. Sin is the problem of a broken relationship with God. Now, you might have come this morning looking forward to us tackling this issue of self-image and self-esteem, thinking, oh, great, I could really do with some affirming this morning. I could do with really being built up, you know, positively. Um, That's the accepted mantra of our culture, isn't it? You know, that we we should be being built up and we should be accepting ourselves as we truly are. And now I'm going on about sin. Why did you bother? Well, let me just say three things as I close. Firstly, within our self-image, there must be a clear recognition of our sinfulness. Not just the fact of it, but the awfulness of it. In what it is and what it produces. And we should feel a really deep sense of shame about that. We mustn't resist the temptation to airbrush it from our lives and hide behind a facade of our performance or our appearance. We must not flatter ourselves or let those around us flatter us either. Secondly, we must distinguish between true and false shame, though. We can feel ashamed about all kinds of things, can't we? About being unemployed or poor or in different circumstances. We can be ashamed of being, being rich or privileged. We can feel ashamed about our bodies or our jobs or our families. But this is not shame that we feel because we have done something wrong. Rather, it's the shame that comes from the expectations and pressures of the culture that we live in. These feelings come from our desire to fit in and be accepted, but they are nothing to feel guilty about. We can all too easily feel more concerned over this sort of shame than our sin. But the bottom line is that I need to care, you need to care much more about what God thinks than other people around us think. And then thirdly, and finally, without seeing the depth of our sin, we will never get the glory of our Savior. As the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is a quest to find a Savior who will rescue us from sin. And Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ 
died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. History is full of great leaders and martyrs for causes. People do die for others, but they usually only do it for people who are worth it. Yet incredibly, Jesus died for those who hated and rejected God. People like you and me. Such is the extent of his love. And therefore, such is the value of human beings. I mean, something is only worth what you'll pay for it, isn't it? So what does it tell you about us that God was willing to pay the precious price of his own son dying for us? to save us from sin and bring us back into the relationship with him that we were made for. This is the second and final piece of the puzzle of human value and identity. We have infinite worth because we are both created and we are rescued by God. It's irrelevant how able or disabled we are, how apparently moral or evil we are, how bright or dull, how rich or poor, how beautiful or ugly None of these things really matter in the end. Only that we are loved by God, the God who made us, and rescued by him, for him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you. Help us therefore to see ourselves as you see us as made in your image and saved by your son so that we can rest content in that. Amen.